This podcast is part of the Red 5 Network. For more Red 5 Network podcasts, visit red5network.com. Hey, this is Jedi Master Rob LaBerry, host of the Jedi Temple Archives podcast, and you're listening to... Wait, hold on, hold on one second. What the force? Hey, hey, aren't you Dr. Sonny Ravencourt of the University of Coruscant? Nope. No, you absolutely are. I recognize you. Now, you were in the archives not too long ago. I believe you were on a tour, a guided tour. Uh... Look, here's the deal. This temple is not open to outsiders without escort. So you're going to just have to move right along or I'm going to have to get Jedi Temple security. Oh, come on. I can't get this kind of information at the University of Coruscant. Look at this transcription. This Jedi was murdered. All right. Uh, that That's it. We're not going to have this conversation. Padawan, please go get the temple guards. Oh, I really don't think you need to call Jedi secure. Okay, here they come. I got to go. Yeah, yeah, that's what I thought. Goodbye, Dr. Ravencourt. All right, all right sorry about that. Uh, where was I? Oh, right. And you're listening to Conversations Podcast with Pat and Charles. It's a translation to a Star Wars nation. It's a celebration. Hello, and welcome to Conversations. I'm Charles. And I'm Pat. And this. What? Greetings. This is Jedi Master Obi-Wan Kenobi. I've arrived at the Jedi Temple Archives for insight into the Mandalorian Darksaber. I merely have limited knowledge of such a saber, and am in great need of help from the Archives. What history can the Holocrons tell me about this elegant weapon? Help me, Rob LaBarry. You're my only hope. Wait. I've got a bad feeling about this. And yes, we have a very special guest tonight. Rob LaBerry from the Jedi Temple Archives podcast. Thanks for joining us tonight. Absolutely. More than happy to join you and uh, very happy that we haven't been having to chase Dr. Sonny Ravencourt out of the archives this evening. I think you might pull attention. <laughs> Rob LaBerry. That's a name I've not heard since episode 20. Ooh, nicely done. <laughs> it's really been that long. Yes, it has. Episode 20. Wow. Yeah. Impressive. Most impressive. <laughs> We've got a great show for you tonight. The Darksaber. We can use our Twitter poll. We asked the question, where did you first see the Darksaber? And possible answer number one was the Clone Wars. Possible answer number two was Rebels. Possible answer number three was the Mandalorian. And possible answer number four was Darksaber? With the question mark. The clear winner was the Clone Wars with 72% of the votes. Now we had 141 votes. We had over 3,000 impressions. So a lot of people saw it. Second place was Rebels with 16%. The Mandalorian was in third place with 11%, and in fourth place was Darksaber with 1%. Now, that is a small number, but out of the 141 votes, that represents an interesting number. Because if you extrapolate that to the amount of people who saw it, some people don't know what the Darksaber is. And if your entry point to Star Wars is the Mandalorian, it just looked like a lightsaber. Right. Who knows what that history is? And that's what we're here to talk about tonight, is that history, and just sort of give people a crash course on the Darksaber 
And as especially as season two is about to be released, maybe we'll help some people have some more information about it and understand the context and why it shook the Star Wars community to the ground when that Darksaber first appeared in The Mandalorian. Yeah, I will I will insert here that I think it's impressive that so many people have previously seen the Darksaber. I think it tells you a little bit something about the social media community that they're probably uh, a more astute group of Star Wars viewers in the sense that they've watched at least some form of the animated series. Uh, because I, I think that there's an awful lot of people out there that have only watched the movies that probably have not delved into uh, the animated series. I think uh, I'm actually a little bit surprised that the Mandalorian wasn't a higher percentage, mm. uh, given the number of people that were drawn to the Mandalorian. I mean, they got to the child, uh, AKA baby Yoda right there in episode one. And uh, I see a lot of people who have very, uh, very much stated that they are attracted and attached to that character. And that's what drug them into some of the star Wars beyond the films themselves. Uh, so the fact that, uh, you know, that, that the Darksaber was not, uh, I think it goes back to your point a little bit that, you know, they may have seen it in the Mandalorian, but did not know that it was called the Darksaber, uh, just based on the fact that they had not encountered it in the animated series. Yeah, and it's not like Moff Gideon was like, uh, I have this Darksaber, <laughs> and he like announced it to the world. True, it's a good, that, that's a great it. point. <laughs> he just, it just appeared, right? That's a great yeah. point. It comes out and it's there, cool looking saber, but. Yeah. yeah, and it just, uh, you know, even like it has almost a mythical sound to it. Yeah. You know, the, the humming of that blade is is very different than other sabers. And I it's think guttural. that, yeah, yeah. and I, I think that it's, um, you know, they obviously you know, replicated that in The Mandalorian. So, you know, as it's cutting through that TIE fighter, you're like, okay, well, this is this is back. Here it is. Like in and it's it's cool to see in the real world as well. Um <laughs> Mandalorian being the real world. Um, <laughs> it is, um but yeah, but it's um it's very, very cool to see that um carry over and translate from animation and those those other series, Rebels and, and Clone Wars, to live action and you know, this sort of, you know, the, the Clone Wars uh, gained a huge following, of course, but Mandalorian just started off with her. Yeah. It was really cool to see them bring that right in there. So maybe, Rob, if you can enlighten us with a little history from the uh, Jedi Temple on the Darksaber and sort of maybe give a little quick brief history about that. Yeah, I, uh, I actually spent some time. I accessed the Holocron Vault and pulled up some information on the Darksaber that I think will be useful to your listeners. And uh, that is that this is a very unique weapon within the Star Wars universe. It was created by a Mandalorian named Tarvisla, who was the first Mandalorian to ever be inducted into the Jedi Order. And this was well back uh, prior to the Jedi Mandalorian War that occurred approximately a thousand years before uh, the Jedi Temple archives that we see within the films themselves. And after his death, that that weapon was actually kept within the Jedi Temple archives until the time that the Sith uh, basically raided Coruscant and raised the Jedi Temple. And right around that time, the Mandalorians had launched a raid to reclaim this weapon from the Jedi and did so successfully. So uh, what was interesting about this particular lightsaber is that it is very different than any other lightsaber you see within Star Wars. It is black bladed, which is the only black bladed lightsaber that we see. 
It has much more of a typical sword blade type shape. It is a, a thin kind of longer emitter on the on the hilt of the dark saber itself. It actually has a cross guard to it. Um, Rural farm boy would have called that quillians, uh, but uh, <laughs> I've learned I've learned from past podcasts to be very specific about that, or I'm probably going to get a comment. Uh, and and what's really interesting about the dark saber itself is that when you see it in a lot of the animated series, and even a little bit within season one of the Clone Wars. It's that the blade sometimes looks unnaturally short uh, to a lot of viewers. Uh, it is definitely a shorter blade than what you would see with the lightsaber. Um, but what I have noticed here, especially in some of the trailers for season two, is it looks like they have lengthened it a little bit from what we've seen in season one. Hmm. So it looks to be a little bit more. And and depending on kind of the the angle that you're viewing it, be it via... Clone Wars or Rebels or even Mandalorian. Uh, if you're looking at it more head on, it can kind of look a little bit shorter. If you're looking at it from more of a side angle, it looks a little bit longer. Uh, but what was really interesting about this blade is that while it was pure black and it actually had black kyber crystals, the blade itself also had a white outline to it that was almost electrical in nature. And that actually would become more and more pronounced based on the emotions of the wielder, uh, be they Jedi or not. So when you watch that within the animated series or when you watch that within the Mandalorian, the more emotionally heightened the state of the user or wielder was, the more pronounced that electrical edge to the Darksaber would be. Uh, That's why when Maul held it, it was pretty much uh, pure electricity. (laughs) Very. very. He was highly emotional. Uh, And certainly, you know, we've seen some of the other wielders, Sabine Wren, uh, also at times when she was getting frustrated by the fact that Ezra was kind of beating her down pretty easily within Rebels prior to uh, Fen Rao giving her the Mandalorian band braces uh, and giving her kind of a little bit of a tactical edge against the Jedi, which is one of the things that makes the Mandalorian so interesting within Star Wars. Uh, she was getting frustrated and you would see that more pronounced within Rebels itself. So that's kind of a unique uh, feature of that Darksaber. Uh, and one of the things that was so interesting about it. The other thing to note about the Darksaber is that it was really uh, kind of the symbol of Clan Vizsla and uh, House Wren specifically. So when you see Sabine Wren holding that Darksaber within uh, Star Wars Rebels, that is very indicative of the fact that she uh, is basically the leader of House Wren at that point. And with that power, she also has the ability to control the other Mandalorian clans and they will all unite behind her. So it was a very uh, historically important weapon to the Mandalorians, as well as being uh, an incredibly unique weapon amongst the Jedi themselves. That's, That's fascinating. Uh, I never yeah, knew that I about know. the intensity of the yeah. the white glow. Like I always just looked at that as a almost like a treatment of animation style. You know, when we first see the dark saber, of course, we see it in the Clone Wars, right? And um, you know, Pre Vizsla has that uh, dark saber uh, start to duel with Obi Wan, who's with Satine. When I first saw that, the blade has a particular, almost like uh, sort of electricity but nothing that intense. And I never made that connection. That's really cool. Yeah, the other thing to note about the Darksaber is that the the special property that that particular version of a lightsaber had uh, that, that kind of separated it from all other lightsabers was that it would actually attract lightsaber blades to itself, uh, which would give a non-Jedi wielder an advantage or at least allow them to compete with a Jedi, right? Huh. So that blade was drawn to other lightsabers, which would give them 
uh, a little bit of, of that additional, you know, microsecond reaction in parrying a Jedi strikes um, or defending themselves from a Jedi. That is cool. What it's a very cool that. weapon. It is. There is a reason we only see one of them within all of Star Wars. And there is a reason why the uh, initiated Star Wars fans, I would call them, um, probably let out a collective gasp when we saw that in episode eight of season one, because that that weapon being in the hands of Moff Gideon has huge implications. And uh, I think that's kind of one of, for me, that's one of the major points that speaks to Sabine absolutely making an appearance in season two. I know we've talked about Ahsoka and we could go into a whole another topic about why Sabine and Ahsoka should show up together within the Mandalorian season two. Yes. Uh, but if the dark saber is there and there's a backstory to be told or any kind of uh, downstream story to be told about the dark saber, uh, Sabine and Bo-Katan who have both been kind of rumored to be part of season two of, of the Mandalorian would be mm-hmm. critical, critical characters that would show up. I, yeah, I know Charles and I have, I've spoken about um, a sort of, theory or um head canon hopefulness that i have uh about season two and uh how the cast of rebels intersects with that or how i how i hope they intersect with that um i've storyboarded it in my head and the whole bit but um (laughs) yes uh, but it's um, it's obviously since its creation been a very important symbol for Mandalore, right. and to have this you know imperial remnant possessing it is unacceptable. And I think right. that um, that there's you know it, it probably he, he probably has it with no one having known that he has it. And now that he's made it known, I think it's it's gonna it's gonna definitely pose an issue for him, um, you know, in, in with all certainty because of its importance to the Mandalorians. And um, you know, not to delve into to my theory and my hopes and dreams, but I think it's going to draw Sabine at least, um, you know, and and Ahsoka and Bo-Katan, I would imagine as well. Um, to to him and to it, more importantly. Look, I liken it very closely to what we experienced within The Force Awakens. When you see Rey open that chest in Maz Kanata's castle and you find the original Skywalker lightsaber sitting there, and the last time we saw that was when it went flying off that catwalk uh, along with Luke's hand, you know, uh, at the at the courtesy of Darth Vader, you know, basically taking that thing off. We want to know how it got from the bowels of Bespin to Maz Kanata's castle. Uh-huh. And the Darksaber is no different. For anyone who knows where that weapon was last seen, which was in the hands of Bo-Katan Christ, the, the sister of Satine Christ, who was Obi-Wan's lost love and... Uh, the leader of the Mandalorian people during their age of peacefulness uh, to this scenario that we see within the Mandalorian where they are once again this warrior race where their weapons and their armor are their religion and they don't take off their helmets, which is not something we see within the animated series. Uh, and all of a sudden this this weapon that is iconic within Star Wars is in the hands of someone completely different and we don't know how it got there. 
Uh, I think that is a one-to-one correlation, and I think people want to understand mm-hmm. the story behind both of those things. Yeah, and with um, you know, with your bringing the uh, Clone Wars back into this, um, I think that uh, it's really kind of important to to explain that you know era of peacefulness uh, with uh, Duchess Satine and all, and how. It was uh, letting their guard down, and that allowed Maul to come in and do his thing. He's you know, <laughs> the master of destruction, and um, and he saw that opportunity, seized it, and um, uh, ended up with the blade. And um, as we spoke about with his uh, motions and and his wielding of the blade, kind of intensifying the um, the dark saber. But he took over Death Watch basically in the um, in the Clone Wars, and um, you know was um, was uh, the, the leader of that, which led to him being able to you know team up with the Pikes and Black Sun and and really start his criminal empire mm-hmm. and um, and really just. You know, go go a different avenue than he had intended to when he was uh, hanging out with Palpatine, but still gain that power and and um, you know be feared by um, everybody. At the, at the risk of cutting Charles out of this conversation completely, which I, I feel like we've already effectively done, <laughs> he's actually been off doing chores for his wife. For the last <laughs> No, but there's there's two uh, pertinent points about what you just said. The first of which is that uh, we now know, and, and you guys will get into it a little bit when we get into the you know kind of the comics background of Maul and, and the dark saber and Sidious and everything. But uh, you know, Sidious knew that Maul was alive, and and Sidious was a force of chaos, but he was a force of controlled chaos. He was directed chaos to an ultimate end. Maul was just chaos, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. Maul yes. and Savage were probably, you know, in a lot of ways, the purest embodiment of the dark side of the force in the sense that they were just about rage and hate and revenge and all these things. And Sidious was far more focused than that. And he had a, he had a master plan in mind that, that served himself. So, uh, you know, that's one aspect of it. The other thing that I think ties more tightly into what we're talking about and, and how this kind of weighs on Mandalorian season two and uh, you kind of have to go back to Mandalorian season one to kind of see the earmarks of this. There's been so much made of the fact that uh, Dr. Pershing, you know, the insignia on his shoulder had ties back to the Kaminoan uh, cloners. But the thing you also need to notice is that the Mandalorians that saved Din Djarin from those mm-hmm. uh, Clone Wars era separatist battle droids that b2 battle droid when he was put down in that hole the mandalorians that saved him were members of death watch if you look at the insignia on their shoulders so they are a splintered group of mandalorians not the quote-unquote true mandalorians that we talk about with perhaps a sabine wren or uh, her mother ursa wren and Bo-Katan cries and, and these other groups so uh you know it's interesting to to see that when we talk about this idea that uh, Mando has been raised in this mindset of keeping your helmet on at all times. I know there's people who would argue that that's because he's more important than the show's letting on and, and showing his face might be uh, something that reveals that to someone who may know better. But I also think it may be tied to the fact that he is kind of a, a scion of this of this Death Watch group, the splintered group that is the ultra-militaristic arm of the Mandalorian people. 
And uh, that may just be the, the uh, you know, the experience that he's had, the life experience he's had. I'll be interested to see when he connects with other Mandalorians, uh, if he is exposed to a different mindset about what it means to be Mandalorian. Um, and I know that there's been a lot of talk about the fact that uh, Pedro Pascal has also been interested in, you know, kind of possibly having more scenes with that helmet off. And that is what we see the Mandalorians like Sabine uh, and her family and, and the other Mandalorians that we see within more of the animated series where taking their helmet off is not something where you can never put it back on. Yeah. And, and you know, to that point, Django Fett's helmet came off, too. <laughs> yeah, but his head came off with. <laughs> so there's that. He never showed his face. That's okay. yeah. <laughs> that's that's true. <laughs> Not willingly, at least. It's interesting to note that when Pre Vizsla challenged Obi Wan Kenobi to that saber fight on Concordia, where we first see the dark saber, and we get a little sort of a brief history run of where the dark saber came. Not as rich as we got in Rebels. It was very interesting because Pre Vizsla. He mentioned that the Darksaber was meant for the descendants of the true warrior faith all Mandalorians once knew. Now, he said faith in that little speech, and I actually rewound that a couple of times because I make that connection to Mandalorian not being a, or a race itself. It's a creed, and that faith ties back. And now that knowing what they said in season one of Mandalorian, I find that very, very telling that the uh, even back then... There was hints of it being more of a of a culture that you follow versus just being sort of rubber stamped because you wouldn't expect that Satine, as we talked about, being a pacifist, is although born on Mandalore from the rest of the Mandalorian warrior race, she was not a Mandalorian. She was the opposite of a Mandalorian, being a pacifist and not using, using aggression. Um so that was a really cool sort of tie back in that I found. But two things. First and foremost, you mispronounced it. You said pre uh, For those listening, we're talking John Favreau. <laughs> <laughs> you will true. learn. You, you will learn. John Favreau is quite fond of voicing characters in anything that he is uh, that he is touching. Uh, so we see that certainly with pre in the uh, in the Clone Wars. We see that absolutely with the uh, kind of heavy Mandalorian. Uh, that tries to take Din Djarin's helmet off in season one of The Mandalorian, if you did not catch the fact that was uh, actually John Favreau's voice. And I would argue that the trailers for season two that we've seen with the Abyssin, the Cyclops character that we see, Gamorrean axe-fighting, boxing ring-type bout uh, that, that Mando's talking to also very much sounds like John Favreau. So note that voice you will hear it probably every season in a different character and it's one of the great little things about john favreau so um but you know to your point about the fact that you know the the death watch sect of mandalorians considering it a religion versus the mandalorian people proper uh considering it more to be a race of people i think that that is very much something that bears on what we're seeing in the Mandalorian. I mean, if, yeah. if this group that Din Djarin has fallen in with is a sect of these, uh, the, you know, this offshoot of Death Watch or Death Watch itself, mm-hmm. um, you know, if they were the ultra militaristic and they had trouble pulling enough of the, of the actual Mandalorian people proper to their side of things in order to kind of even the scales, they would have had to have been willing to, 
to expand their idea of what a Mandalorian was beyond just someone that was born on the planet of Mandalore or Concord Dawn or some of these other, uh, you know, kind of moons of the the Mandalore system um, to anyone who had that kind of militaristic mindset of what a Mandalorian truly was. And that kind of falls in with this idea of the, yeah, the foundlings, yeah. right? So he himself was a foundling. Now we have the child who is potentially a foundling. Uh, they clearly take it more as a, a state of mind versus a blood. And then onwards to the comics. You know, I read the comics in, in Favreau's voice and in Maul's voice, which, uh, you know, Sam Witwer's Maul's voice. But, um, yeah, the the son of Dathomir takes place after Maul has ruled Mandalore. He used the Darksaber um, in that to to extinguish uh, Duchess Satine. Uh, heartbreaking for me as a viewer and for Obi-Wan and for... Um, for, hopefully everyone. After all of that, he um, is captured uh, in the comics by Count Dooku, and um, they intend to interrogate him and kind of get um, get influence over those um, those criminal empires, the Pikes and Black Sun and all, and ultimately to trace you know, what he knows back to Mother Talzin so that Dooku can take care of her and destroy her, I guess, is the intention. Um, so Death Watch comes in and, and saves him from um, being kidnapped, and they take him to Zanbar and um, reunite him with the Darksaber. He's followed by Grievous and the Separatists, and they attack the Mandalorians with their numerous droids. They essentially win, but Maul and some of his uh, cohorts get to the uh, command ship and get him to shut it down, and all the Mandalorians aren't then destroyed. You know, the, the, um, the droids are. So, um, you know, Maul ends up going back and uh, meeting with the Pikes and Black Sun and, and trying to get more uh, resources, more manpower from them because he's, he's fighting this droid army as well. A droid army. Um, <laughs> and, as well as uh, Sidious and Dooku and Ian Grievous, of course. Maul and Dooku end up escaping the Jedi because uh, they're being pursued by them as well. It comes down to Maul and Mother Talzin versus Dooku and Sidious. They're losing. And then Mother Talzin kind of pulls a Kanan from Rebels, pushes Maul out of the fight and away into his uh, ship so that he can uh, escape safely because she's done for. And if he stays, he is also. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that gets him um, out and away from that, you know, escaping by the skin of his teeth. Of course, once again, not unlike what we've seen in the uh, series uh, finale of Clone Wars. Right. Um, I, I will say that within the Star Wars universe, we don't have anything like Cliff's notes here in the United States. Uh, but what we do have are Ravencourt's notes, which is the most dumbed down version of information that you can find within the Star Wars universe. And, and just to kind of feed into the points that Pat was making. So when we talk about Dathomir. Uh, and Mother Talzin. So you're talking about a race of force wielders that are neither light side or dark side. They're kind of neutral. Uh, the, the females are generally considered to be force witches. They have 
uh, the force capabilities, but they use them in a very different way than what we see within the films. Although I will say they're very similar to what we see uh, Darth Sidious use in some of the Clone Wars episodes mm-hmm. uh, with some of his summonings that he does. Uh, and then the Knight Brothers, which are the, the male half of the species that are kind of kept around as warriors and uh, kind of to help procreate and, and maintain the species and that's where maul came from right uh so darth sidious was was uh basically gifted darth maul from mother tells and, and uh you know he learned over time to distrust her that she had her own kind of greater plan that she was working toward where darth sidious had his plan that that was more in line with what the sith plans were so uh certainly if you have not watched clones if you have not watched star wars rebels to a much lesser extent uh, check those out, and you will get a lot more context for Dath and Mir. Uh, and it is—it's uh, definitely another one of those scenarios that we talked about earlier that really adds a lot of context to what mm-hmm. we see in the films um, with uh, with a lot of these characters, and certainly within the Mandalorian. Yeah, and that entire run of comic books—I um, didn't know this, but um, is based on unproduced. Uh, TV shows for the Clone Wars after it was canceled. That's where the sort of the, the impetus for these uh, for the comics came from. Um, so it's a direct continuation of that storyline. Like right after the Lawless, when we see Sidious uh, essentially defeating Maul uh, in on Mandalore, uh, he puts him in jail, and then that whole sort of thing, and and sort of, and that's where the Death Watch comes in. And because they're still aligned with him, they they get him to escape. And through that entire comic run, the single weapon that um, Maul uses apart from his wit is the dark saber, and it is so cool to see the illustrations in that comic run. Uh, and as Rob was alluding to before, where you've got that sort of very unique shape of the dark saber itself, when it's being used, it has that very uh, in motion blur. Uh, you know, that's it's a very distinctive look and feel to it. Uh, before we get on to the next section, we're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back. <laughs> Daniel, a word, please. Uh, yes, sir. Certainly, sir. Before we get to Endor, I have a very important question. Sir? Anything I can do, sir? What do you use for life insurance? From troopers to grand admirals, we've all asked that question at some point, mostly before missions involving rebels. Imperial Direct Life Insurance is your answer. Oh, I use IDL, sir. Competitive rates great customer service but my agents keep dying on missions imperial direct life insurance eh i'll have to look into them um sir you may want the com of my most recent agent sooner than later i see the emperor coming captain you may start your landing on endor i'm sure you will do well as i have foreseen the success of this mission. Call IDL today before your next mission. Rates increase proportionally to chances of death. All claims processing must be done in person after missions on the second death star. Claim approved by Darth Vader. Okay, and we're back from uh, that commercial. Thank you very much to our sponsors. So we just finished our little talk about the uh, Maul Son of Dathomir comic run and uh, where we saw that uh, Maul had uh, escaped yet again. Uh, Sidious and and his again grand plan, which really wasn't changed. Yeah, fine. Maul has escaped, and even though Grievous 
And Duke, who said, well, that's not a good thing. Sirius was like, well, it doesn't matter. He His power base is now gone. His Black Sun associations are done and finished. So no longer a threat. So next we see the Darksaber on Scarif. Ah, no, Wait, nothing. Try yeah, again. yeah, nothing happens on Scarif. Yeah. The next time we see, <laughs> let's just let's just skip Scarif and go to where the real action is. Uh, <laughs> Rebels. <laughs> no, I will uh, real quick. I do want to interject there that you know you talk about the fact that Sidious has kind of uh, accepted the fact that Maul is still a, a player in the game here, but he is now twisting him to his uh, nefarious ends for the grand plan of the Sith, and that was one of the great things about Darth Sidious, right? He was able to take these scenarios where uh, events would conspire in a way that he maybe had not foreseen, and he was still able to twist mm-hmm. them to his advantage. So he still ended up with Maul forming uh, or being in control of some subset of a criminal syndicate, as we see in Solo, a Star Wars story. But Maul is now creating this, or, sorry, not Maul, uh, Sidious is now creating this situation where he is manipulating Maul and the chaos that he is selling as part of this criminal syndicate to kind of uh, further his plans for his empire. He had taken away Maul's ability to interfere with his plans, his grand plan for the Mm -hmm. Sith, Uh, but he still still let Maul go out and create this chaos, which he was so effective at creating, which we see season seven of the Clone Wars, absolutely. We see Maul creating chaos on a grand scale, uh, and certainly within the criminal syndicates that we see within Solo Star Wars Story, he is still creating this disruption within the greater galactic population. And meanwhile, Sidious is basically saying, you need me to provide this this uh, safety and security uh, yes. that only the Empire can provide. So he has twisted Maul and his need to constantly be this force of chaos to his greater uh chaotic ends that are far more focused as we talked about earlier yeah i think i i kind of um feel as though it's, it's similar to like a wrestling match like real wrestling um where <laughs> where if someone's coming at you you use their momentum and their their speed and strength and you kind of manipulate that to help take them down you know yeah. so he's setting up things Sidious is setting things up to to you know continue his rise to power and and his grand takeover and everything and (laughs) these players come in from the sides and he ends up manipulating events or people in such a way that whatever this person's doing can benefit him and it's actually it's actually a little known fact that underneath those robes Sidious was wearing those wrestling underpants. <laughs> oh yes, he did have a Sith singlet. I do remember he that. Did. It was the That's Sith true. symbol. Uh, yeah. <laughs> His second name was Darth Libre. <laughs> <laughs> Nacho Sidious. <laughs> Nacho. That's so much better, Hashtag you jerk. <laughs> but like you said, Pat, it's totally like 100 percent because you've got uh, when the Jedi. Uh, landed on Ord Mandel after that battle, you've got Mace Windu then communicating with um, Palpatine, of course, letting him know what's going on and feeding Palpatine information that, oh, hey, look, we can maybe catch Maul and Grievous and take care of this whole Clone War thing in one foul swoop. Of course, Palpatine knows that as Sidious, but he's got 
every piece on this chessboard under his control, no matter what angle you're looking from. And that's what's so brilliant about, of course, uh, Sidious. So back to the saber. Yeah. <laughs> so, right. Good point. So we next see the, the dark saber in Rebels. Basically, what ends up happening in Star Wars Rebels is that Maul, who had been previously in possession of the Darksaber, has essentially created this sanctum on Dathomir, uh, where he has this Darksaber kind of on this altar as one of his prized possessions. He's no longer using it. He's created his own uh, his own double-bladed lightsaber at this point, which is basically the lightsaber we see within Solo Star Wars Story. Uh, but uh, as part of the kind of play out of Rebels, uh, Ezra and Sabine end up infiltrating that sanctum on Dathomir. And uh, we won't go into all the details of it, but suffice to say that Sabine is able to come away with that dark saber and turns that over to Kanan. And Kanan later comes in contact with a Mandalorian named Fen Rao, who essentially gives uh, kind of some of the same exposition that Charles was talking about earlier. Uh, that we get from Pre Vizsla in Clone Wars, which is kind of the backstory of Tar Vizsla being the first Mandalorian accepted into the Jedi Order, and he created this very unique weapon, and that uh, the Mandalorians later reclaimed that uh, around the time of the fall of the Jedi Order, and that ever since it had been kind of a symbol of the uh, of of House Vizsla and specifically Clan Wren. And knowing that Sabine was a member of Clan Wren, he felt very strongly that that lightsaber should, uh, that very unique lightsaber should should come into her possession and she should be the one to lead her clan uh, and kind of reunite the Mandalorian people. And that is actually kind of one of the main story arcs of Star Wars Rebels, which is that Sabine, who is uh, by all accounts not Force-sensitive within Star Wars Rebels, um, is given possession of this and kind of trained in the use of it by Kane and Jarrus, who, you know, there's there's two aspects of this. One is that Sabine is kind of learning about this Darksaber and, and what its meaning is to the Mandalorian people. And it's also kind of a, a furtherance of Kanan and his uh, ability to train those in his care. Uh, he's already been training Ezra throughout m- most of, of uh, Star Wars Rebels, but Sabine is a very different case. She's not force sensitive. And so uh, kind of between Kanan and then some intervention of Fen Rao, who is providing uh, Sabine with some of the customary weapons of the Mandalorians, which include mm-hmm. some of those Mandalorian vampires that have all of the various weapons, the grappling line and the flamethrower and, and the things that are very customary of the Mandalorian vampires. Uh, she learns that while she, uh, you know, at, at, without those, without, without the assistance of those uh, devices, she is not necessarily a match for a Jedi, even a young Jedi in the, in the case of Ezra Bridger, who is really a Padawan at that point. Uh, but with those weapons and with her knowledge as a Mandalorian of how to use those, she very much is a, a match for Ezra. Um, and so that, you know, kind of it tells a little bit of the story of how the Mandalorians, despite the fact that they were not force sensitive, why they were able to compete with the Jedi in those wars with the Jedi Order and why they were considered a, a natural en- enemy of the Jedi. Uh, and also um, went a long way toward uh, kind of helping Sabine reach some of the maturity uh, that we see her exhibit later in Star Wars Rebels. What I found interesting, too, about the fact that Fen Rao, when he was 
shown the Darksaber by Kanan after they got it off of uh, Dathomir, there wasn't a power play to get that Darksaber. I mean, Fen Rao immediately knew what it was, the weight of it, understood the power of that weapon, but he wasn't looking to get it he and he's a protector right he was like a one of the like one of the protectors of the uh of mandalore so he was almost in a position of hey you know if anybody's going to use this thing probably could be me you know like but it wasn't that at all he understood where that needed to be now of course he knows that sabine is from house ren and that's a powerful house and you know the sort of current leader of of uh, of mandalore uh against uh, uh gar saxon but in that instance, to me, that emphasizes the the dedication to the proper seat of power within Mandalore. That his first intention or his first instinct was not to take that dark saber for himself. It was to be, hey, this probably should go to Sabine. Well, yeah, he wasn't going to go all Bilbo Baggins on it. <laughs> <laughs> I I will say that uh, you opened as as you were saying that you kind of opened my third Jedi. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's in quite sense, disgusting. No, in the sense that, you know, it's a it's a very important point. It's a very subtle point, right? Because you have Fen Rao, who is the representative of kind of these old school Mandalorians who are very strong and proud people. And he is the representative of kind of a remnant of that that has been humbled to some degree. And he is interacting with Kanan Jarrus, who is very much a representative of a Jedi Order, who at mm. that point has been very humbled by the situation that that uh, arose from the execution of Order 66. And that Kanan Jarrus, who was a, a Padawan of Depa Balaba um, and basically escaped Order 66 by the skin of his teeth and went through some very dark times before they, you know, that he became a part of the Rebels crew. You have two people who have had humility kind of forced on them mm. by the by the galaxy as a whole and so you have two people who you know ken and jarris wasn't jumping to reclaim the dark saber for himself he could have easily done that mm -hmm. and not even told fenral was in his possession uh fenral at the same point you know being a, a representative of, of the people who rightfully own that dark saber uh, didn't jump on it for himself and they were both very uh, there was a lot of humility shown by mm. both of them uh in that, that 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 weapon then passed on down to sabine and then later on within star wars rebels we see sabine who has you know at the beginning of star wars rebels she is uh, uh, in her mid-teens i mean she is a very young uh, representative of her people who has done amazing things, created amazing weapons and, and seen the, you know, the fallout of those things. And, you know, she's got Ezra kind of flirting with her and she's rejecting those advances. Well, she matures very much over the course of the series to the yeah. point where she is self-aware enough to know that she is not the, the correct person to unite this, this group of Mandalorians under herself. And that Bo-Katan cries, who is the sister of Satine mm. uh, that we know from the Clone Wars and, and the love interest of Obi-Wan that may never have been realized mm. And there's probably a whole other episode to talk about how that relationship between Obi-Wan and Satine mm -hmm. uh, fed into Obi-Wan's tolerance of what was going on between Anakin and Padme. Yeah. Yes. But we won't get into that here. <laughs> <laughs> He's a alert. Um, now is not the time. <laughs> no. 
But, you know, she is willing to then pass this weapon along to Bokatan to say, you are the correct person to lead our people. You are, you are the symbol that they need, the strength that they need to become who they're supposed to be. And that is, I think, what adds even more weight to the fact that when we see this, when, when we see this weapon appear in the hands of Moff Gideon at the end of season one of The Mandalorian, we want to know how did he mm. take this weapon away from Bo-Katan? Because mm. the the mythos behind the dark saber is that by holding this weapon, you basically rule all of Mandalore. Yeah. But only if you take this weapon in combat. Right. Right. So if you take this weapon through deception, through thievery, through any other means, then you are not the rightful ruler mm-hmm. of Mandalore. And the fact that we're talking about the fact that Moff Gideon has this weapon and there is some appearance potentially in season two of Mandalorian by Katie Sackhoff playing Bo-Katan Cries, unless that is a flashback, right, she yeah. is in fact still alive, then he obtained that weapon through some underhanded means that we will potentially learn more about in season two. And I feel as though... If they, if he bested her in combat, she wouldn't live to tell the tale. Yeah, and you see that too with when Sabine does bring the dark saber back to Cronwest or Cron, like however you pronounce that planet, Cronus, Cronus, okay, um, and brings it back to um, the Mandalorian people and her mother, of course. Uh, yeah, and you know, even her mother, like you were saying, Rob, she sort of questions why she has this dark saber. Like, did you right. beat Maul? Like, no, I sort of just found it. So she's even sees that possession of the Darksaber as sort of a false uh, false possession to a certain degree, but understands the complexities with it. And so, you know, in that season and those few episodes, Sabine stays on Mandalore and tries to reestablish uh, the Mandalorian people and sort of opposing Gar Saxon, who's being uh, supported and propped up by the Empire. And so they're trying to reunite the entire people. And when we come back to um, West to see where they are, of course, uh, Ezra's there and, and the whole ghost crew minus um, Hera are trying to help them get to this final battle. And again, you see Sabine wielding this dark saber. And like you said, Rob, almost like a completely complete 180 from where she was when we left her. Sabine had already offered Bo-Katan the dark saber and she refused it. So I'm not the leader. So again, we see that humility. We see that Mandalorian creed or faith that the the transfer of power has to be a true transfer of power. We see Bo-Katan, of course, raising that Darksaber, uniting all the houses and the protectors under one. And that's, like you said, Rob, at that point, we leave that arc in Rebels. We don't see the Darksaber again until we get to the Mandalorian. Yeah, and it's uh, I have to thank you. Uh, because very much in the way that our personal relationship is very symbiotic between you, Pat, and I, that we all, uh, you know, connect at a, at a very personal level outside of our podcasts um, and very much feel like brothers on a number of levels, that our podcasts are very uh, symbiotic in the sense that I just did a podcast on Sabine Wren um, yes. that provides a lot of of kind of the things that you were alluding to. But, you know, it's it's super interesting with her because... Her character arc goes from the beginning of Rebels, where she is very much repelling Ezra, to the end of Rebels, where she is very much drawn to go 
find and bring Ezra back so true. Yeah. Um, without trying to give too much of what happens over the course of Rebels away. And, uh, you know, again, the thing that the thing that is so brilliant about Star Wars in general, and, and this is separate from the Darksaber itself, but the Darksaber is kind of a vessel uh, where this story gets told, is that it is about it's about the people. And it is as much about the story that's not told as about mm. as it is about the story that is told. And I, in in so many cases, the story that's not told is the one that everyone is like raving for. Uh, you know, as I as I mentioned earlier in this show, the fact that we see what happens to Luke when he gets his hand cut off in Empire Strikes Back, and and the Skywalker lightsaber goes spinning off into the abyss. And then next thing you know, we see it show up in Force Awakens. Mm. And it is a staple of the rest of that story. Uh, everyone knows what goes on in the films. The question is what happened in the interim. And mm -hmm. it is so much the same with this Darksaber. We know what happens to the Darksaber within the Clone Wars. We know what happens within Rebels if you, you know, if you should go out and choose to watch those things. But the big gap right now is what happened between the end of Star Wars Rebels and the beginning of Mandalorian, sorry, the end of Mandalorian season one, where we see Gideon, you know, emerge from this TIE fighter husk with holding Starksaber. And that is the thing, you know, that's a draw for, for hardcore Star Wars fans. And even for the people who aren't hardcore Star Wars fans at this point, that may be the thing that makes them hardcore Star Wars fans. <laughs> you know, they get sucked in early by by the child, but all of a sudden they start to realize there's so many layers to this yeah. story. And what is this thing? And what is this weapon? And why is it so important? And why are all these characters potentially going to get brought into season two? Uh, and welcome to our sad, sad lives. <laughs> and why are my hardcore Star Wars fan friends freaking out <laughs> right, right um yeah okay so with that being said let's talk about season two of the mandalorian you know i know we've alluded to it at the beginning of the episode where we have all these different ties back to the the star wars universe including obviously the dark saber which we see in the end of uh season one pat we'll start with you what would you say about season two and what you'd like to see i hope it's good i'd like to see it <laughs> Boo, redo. <laughs> Lame. Lame. Um, all right. So I see <clears throat> Fabro and Filoni being smart enough to not turn it into the Ahsoka show. So they need an in and an out uh, for those characters. And I know that, um, you know, with the Darksaber and a Mandalorian being in the series, that's going to be a draw at least for Sabine. So she presumably being with Ahsoka, um, looking for Ezra at this point, I think will catch wind of this Mandalorian Darksaber and take a quick side mission for that on their way to finding Ezra because they haven't found him yet. Mm. And um, as Din is uh, attempting to not get his ass handed to him by Gideon with the Darksaber, um, Ahsoka will swoop in and save him with her Jedi skills and lightsabers. And um, then they get the saber from him um, or at least saved in and potentially the child from being destroyed. 
So uh, at that point, you know, they'll kind of give him some history of Mandalore from uh, Sabine's point of view and then say, all right, well, that was cool. We still got to find our friend Ezra. And then they peace out and go about their business. So um, that gives them an out of the show um, that's going to be desperately needed to explain why they're not series regulars. Right. Because you, you, you run a very serious risk of turning this into Clone Wars slash Rebels 2.0 um, when a lot of the beauty of the first season was that it didn't have all of that. It was in the universe, but it didn't have all of those connections and all of those other stars in the series. Mm-hmm. You know, you can mention them, you can, you can, you know, catch wind of them, you'd be on Tatooine and things like that, but it's not the familiar, which I think made it so great. Rob, what do you think? <laughs> no. <laughs> no, I, you know, the interesting thing is I, I think that, you know, Pat is, you know, Pat's correct in the sense that the, the balancing act that they have to do here in Mandalorian season two, when you look at how Mandalorian season one played out, it was eight episodes. It was anywhere from 35 to 45 minutes an episode. So you end up with something in the ballpark of, you know, two thirds to two and a half thirds of a trilogy. Uh, And we all know that, you know, with the prequels, with the original trilogy, which was probably the most efficiently told of the three trilogies in the sequel trilogy, that the, the struggle they have is to convey these very complex uh, human struggles or alien struggles in, mm-hmm. in many cases uh, within the span of, you know, this four, six hour period. Uh, or more that that they have to tell the story and that's why things like the clone wars and rebels came into being which was to kind of flesh those out so you know they were able to tell fairly effectively within season one of the mandalorian an arc of a story that that really connected people to this character and kind of the overall uh, plot of what they were trying to achieve but when you start introducing all these things the dark saber sabine ahsoka uh, potentially Boba Fett, uh, which is one of the other rumors that we've heard, and you know, uh, kind of some of the things from the aftermath book series uh, mm-hmm. that we know uh, that the you know the Boba Fett may not be the person wearing the Boba Fett armor that we all know and love. Those are those are things that within potentially another eight series arc uh, of roughly the same length episodes that they're going to have a hard time telling the Mandalorian season two story plus filling in all the exposition of all these underlying storylines. So for me, that's the scariest part of season two. Um, And I know that, you know, at this point it's undeniable that the child, AKA baby Yoda is the thing that drew so many casual Star Wars fans into the Mandalorian season two. And if you get wrapped up in all these other storylines and, and reduce the amount of screen time of that adorable little critter, uh, the cutest 50 year old we've ever seen. Well, arguably. (laughs) Uh, So (laughs) I think that, uh, you know, Favreau, Filoni, all the folks involved in this season two of the Mandalorian, which, by all accounts, I mean, this is going to be a critical season. This is going to be what 
wraps people in where they're in for the long haul or they say, hey, season one was a flash in the pan. Uh, you know, it was fun, but now it's getting really complicated and, and I'm not willing to, to spend the time it takes to understand what's going on. This is going to be the season that is going to be either a huge payoff in the sense that they balanced everything per- perfectly and we get the Mandalorian story with these accents of all these surrounding storylines that have meaning to the, the hardcore Star Wars fans without distracting the people who are more casual fans, or it's going to be the thing that breaks the series in the sense that it is just overly complicated and the casual fans jump ship and the only people that watch are going to be the, the hardcore fans. Yeah. I'd have to uh, agree with both of you guys. Um, we have <laughs> season two. It's about to drop on the 30th. We've heard rumors that, Season three is already just about to start production, how much we believe that, and they're writing season four. So take those things for what they're worth. You've got another two seasons after the one we're about to watch, where you still have story and runway to make this thing work. And my fear for season two is that, like you've both said, it's going to be crammed with too many temptations. You know, we've seen the casting and like... Lucas is never Lucasfilm obviously has never confirmed 100% that these characters are in here. We've got some really really strong and they won't. Right. Got some really strong indications that they're this is going to be happening. Uh I hope they're flashbacks. I hope that they're similar to the origin story of Din where we saw him in a few little seconds here and there that you still have the major on the Mandalorian and the child and minor on the intra-movie connections to the rest of the universe that you still have that dark saber wow factor of a Bo-Katan showing up in a in a flashback or uh you know uh Boba Fett or whatever where it doesn't take away from the story because where you have the armor setting Din upon this quest quest thank you to bring the child to his people you gotta go find the planet so that is and it was repeated again in the trailer, if I'm not mistaken, like his, this is what's driving season two. Well, that still has to happen. If you got all this other stuff going through, I just hope it's a slow boil that's appropriately paced, that's peppered with cool stuff, but you still have the core story, which was a fantastic season one. Yeah, and to go back to my comparison to an onion, right? It's it's the beauty of Star Wars. You can take it at its surface layer, mm-hmm. and you can enjoy it as a story. You can delve a little bit deeper and kind of get some of this backstory or you can really dig into it to the point where you start crying, <laughs> uh, which is why the onion analogy is so appropriate uh, because all of a sudden you don't sleep at night because you're thinking about these things. And I'm not going to say that I'm one of these people, but you know, uh, look, take, take the Mandalorian completely aside and look at it from a purely Disney plus standpoint. They have promised a lot of Star Wars content and they've delivered in the sense that you can access all these Star Wars films and the animated series. And there's certainly hours and hours and hours of Star Wars entertainment should you choose to engage in that. But they have also promised things like a Kenobi series and a Cassian Mm -hmm. Andor series. And to this point, the only new content that they have delivered on has been the Mandalorian. So it is incredibly important for them Mm. to hook and keep that audience going with the Mandalorian until they can start up some of these other series, which hopefully are coming. Mm. Uh, you know, talk about the fact that certainly Kenobi is, is set to go into production. Um, 
despite all of the challenges that that's faced. And, and certainly, you know, the current pandemic is just one of those. But, you know, I, I think it is, uh, I think Disney is very invested in making sure that they balance this properly. And, and there's a lot of pressure on Favreau and a lot of pressure on Filoni to, to keep people engaged until they can start bringing some of this other content online. Um, and certainly, you know, from what they've talked about, you know, they, from a Disney perspective, just at a movie level, they're going to be making films and sh- and potentially shows in the future without knowing what platform these things are going to be released mm-hmm. on. Is this going to be something that goes to a theater? Is it going to be something that goes straight to Disney Plus? Is it going to be a series? Is it going to be a movie? Um, you know, a lot a lot of that landscape is changing right now, and so uh, I love what they're doing with the dark saber. I love how they're kind of tying this this thing that's become an entertainment, a Star Wars entertainment phenomenon into existing canon uh but it is absolutely something that is a very finely balanced it's you know it's balanced on the point of a dark saber if we want mm. to call it that nice uh, mm. <laughs> lord knows what can happen if it shifts a little too much one way or the other <laughs> <laughs> well that was a fantastic discussion on the dark saber where the origins were explored where we went through the entire animated series the comic books and ended up with the mandalorian of season one and potential what could happen in season two and rob would love to thank you once again for joining us and you know dropping the knowledge bombs is like you always do not just on our show but on your show weekly there's always something that uh we discover with you and tom or you alone doesn't matter um some great tidbits and some great lore in there and for those few people who don't know where you are, where they can find your show. Why don't you uh, let our listeners know where they can get that? Yeah, you can find uh, Tom and I typically on the Hyperion Adventures podcast. (laughs) 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 I I, I do have to preface this first and foremost by saying my co-host Tom is one of the most self-deprecating people I know and he constantly is talking about the fact that he is just there as filler but uh, you know I told you guys before we started this episode that you guys are the true geniuses you are the ones who uh, named your show Conversations and ultimately I think the key behind all successful Star Wars podcasts is that it is a conversation it's a conversation between the host and the co-host or the co-hosts uh, if that is the scenario, uh, and certainly with the fans. And I think that, you know, that is that is what makes Star Wars such a great thing. You can have these conversations. You can talk to different people. Uh, as I pointed out earlier, you know, Charles, you made some points, and Pat, you made points that, that kind of made me think about things in a different way. And that, you know, no matter how hardcore a fan you are, is uh, one of the great things about Star Wars and uh, is a testament to the fact that, you know, Lucas was ultimately an an anthropologist and he was about humans and human nature and uh, why this is such a a phenomenon 40 plus years later, 43 plus years later. So, um, yeah, certainly if you want to uh, look into us and, and what we have to offer over at the Jedi Temple Archives, you can find us at jtapodcast.com, which will link you to all our episodes, certainly on any of your favorite podcatchers. We're out there on all the different platforms. And if you want to reach out to us to talk to us about any particular Star Wars topic or any potential ideas for future episodes, you can reach us at jtapodcast at gmail.com. And uh, previously, I would have given you a long litany of social media <laughs> platforms that you could have found us at. But uh, fortunately, the world has, uh, has conspired to help us simplify our social media footprint. So you can now find us on uh, 
uh, Twitter and Pinterest at JTA Podcast. So uh, look for us there, and we love to interact with our fans. And uh, certainly anyone else who's interested in Star Wars, certainly Charles and Pat, uh, any of the members of the Red 5 Network, who I would encourage you to go check out. Uh, lots of great content out there. And then we're um, on stuff, too. <laughs> Absuations. Yes, he's got it. Yes, we're we're at Suations on the Twitters, uh, Conversations on Instagram, and uh, uh, Conversations dot com is our website. And we've got the the Facebooks at uh, Conversations, uh, Facebook dot com slash Conversations. That is, and um, you know Red Five and all our uh, all our fun uh, cohorts over there. Um, we're all together in this uh, crazy, chaotic, beautiful, forcing, fantastic uh, family here. Yeah, and I, loopily, most of you have not realized that uh, conversations.com is a wonderful place to go. They have some incredible black series dioramas that they create. Uh, I cannot tell you how many hours and hours of laughs I've gotten out of their various scenarios that they have set up. These two have spent literally hundreds of dollars creating nerdtastic scenarios right out of the films. Uh, we have the the holiday special that is like, I'm sorry, Luke coming up soon. Uh, oh. Luke on a ledge. Yeah, I, I started seeing some um, Elf on a Shelf merch at the stores. So it's it's getting to be that time yeah. again. Well, it's getting sure. close to life Luke day. So. Mm -hmm. Luke on a ledge is coming. That's yep. great. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> Probably just as well you didn't hear it. <laughs> just as well. <laughs> Greetings, listener. Just a reminder that the podcast you just heard is a proud member of the Red 5 Network family. Red5Network.com offers you a great variety of shows you'll be sure to love. So the next time you're itching for quality content, make sure you head over to Red5Network.com. You'll find this podcast along with a whole lot more. All wings report in. It's the Red 5 Network. <laughs>